Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the University of Sydney for a terrific public lecture. I'm Jared Goggin from the Department of Media and Communications. And so first, I just wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, to whom we pay our respect um, as we share our ideas tonight. We recognise the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country and acknowledge our responsibility as scholars to respect and care for country, people and spirit. Dr Ruth Harley has worked in the public and private sector screen organisations for 25 years, including 21 years in CEO roles at the New Zealand Broadcasting Commission, New Zealand On Air, the New Zealand Film Commission and Screen Australia. She's a former National Media Director for Saatchi and Saatchi and a Senior Manager at the Queen Elizabeth II Arts Council. Her experience in both Australia and New Zealand are particularly appropriate for tonight's event, given the role of the Australian and New Zealand Communication Association in sponsoring the lecture and the conference that many of us have been attending. Ruth has received a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for her services to film and an OBE for her services to broadcasting in her arts. In her post-executive life, she has served as chair or board member for three cultural organisations, been an executive coach, consulted on screen projects, cared for her infant grandson and elderly parents, and perhaps most surprisingly, played in a ukulele band. And on a personal note, I was particularly impressed by her, state, her stated commitment to the value of education during the, our first phone conversation together. It can only be hoped that more people of her stature and public leaders like her speak up in the same way and in the years ahead. Please offer a warm welcome to the 2017 Mayor Lecturer, Dr Ruth Harley. Tēnā katoa, uh, greetings to you all. And thank you to the Australian New Zealand Communications Association and the University of Sydney Department of Media and Communications for the invitation to present this Henry Mayer Lecture. It's a real honour for me to stand here and to um, stand in the name of a public intellectual as distinguished as Henry Mayer. I take the title of this lecture from a renowned New Zealand magnetic resonance imaging physicist Paul Callaghan. He described his motivation as the continual hope that repeated failures and puzzlement will be punctuated by occasional luminous moments. The continual hope that repeated failures and puzzlements will be punctuated by occasional luminous moments. I think all of us in the screen industry experience the repeated failures and puzzlements. It might be about the difficulty of conveying to our political leaders the fundamental importance of arts and culture in the widest sense, and screen storytelling in particular. Or it might be their never-ending puzzlement about what audiences will resonate to. And you, know, you look at something and you say, what, no box office, that was just fabulous, how could they not love it? Or the other way around, really? They loved that, that piece of crap. 
And it's happened to us all time and time again, and you end up thinking, what do I know? The times when a story fires are the luminous moments. They keep us entranced or doggedly determined to live to fight another day. Intrinsic to the word luminous is its cognate, illuminate. Illuminate, to light up, to shine a light on, to see clearly. And I want to offer my thoughts on the fundamental issues that I believe will illuminate our screen industries in the coming decade. I'm going to introduce, look at three interrelated themes. Identity, why does storytelling matter to us? Diversity, who is us anyway? And government, why should we lay claim to public resources? And I'll continue with the con uh, conclude with the challenges as I see them. What are the paradigm shifts that will be required if our Australian and New Zealand storytelling is to survive in the digital age? So we'll start with identity. Why does storytelling matter to us? Identity is a multi-layered phenomenon. It exists on personal, familial, community, national, as well as demographic and psychographic levels. It can be local and national, and it can cross international boundaries. It has aesthetic, cognitive, and moral dimensions. It's who we are, how we act, and what we believe in. In any one of these dimensions, or in multiples of them, it connects us to each other. It is the ties that bind. When I think of my own identity, it's a series of luminous moments. It's only one narrative of my life, of course there's plenty of others, but it's the one that's relevant today. I grew up in middle-class, small-town New Zealand. Somewhere along the line, my dad decided to buy paintings to decorate the walls. He was trying to get his eye in. At first he bought paintings that all had very large, gilt, ornate frames, but they all went back. And one day he brought home a 19th century watercolour by an artist called John Gully. It was a watercolour painted in our own town, and we all connected with it. And that was a keeper. We had our eye in. And it was the beginning of what I now know as my mind's eye, the eye that can recognise, contextualise, categorise, and inform my perspective and my sense of identity in time and space. Ten years later, I was in Wellington researching for my PhD. My PhD was about the construction of a New Zealand identity between the Depression in the 30s and post-war 50s. It was a time when artists and intellectuals and some politicians recognised that England was not our mother and we were in fact alone, as we saw it then, orphaned in the South Seas. It was a time of conscious construction of identity, both here in Australia and in New Zealand. That particular day I was cross-eyed with manuscripts, in particular microfiche, which is a technology from hell. So I decided to take a trip to the National Art Gallery in Wellington. And there was an exhibition by an artist called Colin McCann. I didn't know anything about contemporary New Zealand visual art, so I'd never heard of him. It was a luminous moment. In that moment I realised that the 19th century watercolours my father collected were recognisable to me, beautiful to me, but not mine. Colin McCann had illuminated my internal landscape, my mind's eye. Ever since then, I've understood that we all have our own internal landscapes. Our identities are constructed from a series of luminous moments. Artists speak to those moments. Storytellers illuminate aspects of those landscapes, interrogate them, 
expose the dark undersides, enable us to make meaning and acknowledge our essential humanity. In so doing, they establish our connectedness to each other. Our role as cultural sector leaders is to facilitate the opportunities for storytellers to create those moments of recognition for us as individuals and in communities who share collective moments of recognition, shared identity. When I came to Australia in 2008, I was excited to enter a new culture and a new identity. I felt a deep sense of humility about my foreignness. I knew a lot about how to lead organisations, such as the one that Screen Australia was going to turn into. But I identified personally and professionally, professionally as a New Zealand cultural nationalist. And what was one of those going to do in Australia? Coming from New Zealand, I'd learned protocols about meeting and greeting that are fundamental to Maori cultural practice. There was a welcome ceremony for me at Screen Australia. It was a metaphorical bridge. On the one side were Tainui Stevens and his wife Weha, Maori leaders from the New Zealand screen industry. They introduced me as a person who could be trusted with the treasure that is culture. And on the other side was the welcoming party, Sally Riley, who led the Indigenous branch of Screen Australia, and Australian screen elder Richard Green. I then felt I had been recommended from my home country and welcomed by my new country. I felt a humble sense of legitimacy and an obligation to earn the trust that had been placed in me. A fundamental difference between New Zealand and Australia is that in Australia it's much less common to have knowledge of and commitment to the stories of first Australians. Screen Australia had inherited an outstanding hub of Indigenous storytelling. My obligation was to ensure that they had the resources to keep building their capacity, and I thank Sally Riley for her acceptance and guidance. Early in my training as an arts administrator, I learned that if you didn't get the administration right, you'd certainly fail. And if you only got the administration right, you'd certainly fail. The task of being a leader in cultural industries is to ensure that there are no administrative deficits, and then, much more importantly, to ensure that the creative people have the resources to work where their vision takes them. There are a great many failures and puzzlements to have on the administrative side, and that takes most of your time and effort. And it's, made only, it's only made worthwhile by the luminous moments that are afforded by wonderful storytelling. I went to Alice Springs early in my time at Screen Australia to see the community premiere of Warwick Thornton's film, Samson and Delilah. A mob of young kids ran around in front of the screen and their silhouettes bobbed along the bottom of the frame like a Greek chorus. The local community loved the film. It resonated with their sense of identity and community. Australian cinema audiences engaged with Samson and Delilah, as did the international film community. The film won the prestigious Camera Door Prize at the Cannes Film Festival. It's a discomforting film. It shines a fierce light on the racism, wrong-headedness and exploitation of First Australians that runs deep in white Australia. The formal premiere of the film was in Adelaide a few days later. After the screening, members of the Screen Australia board looked at each other anxiously, hoping that somebody else would speak about the film. So I did. I've learned to accept the discomfort and challenge that art can offer, and I believe it's my duty to bring heart, intellect, and effort in response to it. And this brings me to the second theme of my talk, diversity, 
We talk of our identity, but who is us? Our societies are increasingly complex and polarised. Indigenous peoples are marginalised, and migrants from non-English speaking uh, countries are too. The melting pot idea of multiculturalism no longer serves. We now understand multiculturalism more as a mosaic of clubs, clubs of common interest, such as religion and language. The question becomes how to enable the different clubs to intersect, creating common threads of culture and identity on which to base a functioning, cohesive society. In both of our countries, we have a dominant discourse owned by a white male club. This presents a real challenge for funding agencies, such as those that I've led. The institutional structures are not conducive to enabling diversity. First Nations and migrant stories have to work much harder to be heard, and so do women's stories. I've puzzled and puzzled about why this is such a challenge. It doesn't matter what indicator we look at, women will not be well represented on the privileged side of the ledger. And this, this includes access to the resources to tell our stories. For a long time I knew the stats, but I felt that we'd done our job in the 70s. Surely merit would be all we need now. I focused on advocating for women's stories individually and on merit, rather than taking a systems view of it. Eventually, Screen Australia board member Deanne Weir lifted the blinders off my eyes and I got with the systemic programme and I thank Deanne for that. It was a constant surprise to me how hard it was to get a female-driven project over the line. I remember one project in New Zealand called Ophelia Thinks Harder. It was a take on Hamlet from a feminist point of view. It ticked all the right criteria for an advanced development investment and the board turned it down. I couldn't think how to explain this to the filmmakers. So I took up a position at the whiteboard and asked the board members to give me the words. And I waited. And at last the only female board member said, it's because it's a women's film. Well, nobody else had anything to say after that. So the decision was changed and the project got that tranche of funding. And I thank Catherine Peters. At Screen Australia, I chaired the Film Financing Committee that did due diligence on projects presenting for production finance. On one occasion, I completed my reading of 22 scripts and found myself entangled with one particular project called Sleeping Beauty. It was proposed that the writer, Julia Lee, also direct the film. Now, Julia had no directing experience of any sort. Furthermore, it was a very confronting story, and the way it was to be shot was scarily unconventional. A lot of reasons to say no. But it had that luminous quality, an arresting voice, what to do. Martha Coleman, Head of Development at Screen Australia, decided to take advice from Jane Campion. Jane agreed it was a no. She offered to meet Julia for a mentoring conversation about building a solid career, um, a solid foundation for her career. But Jane found the voice and Julia's vision for the film utterly compelling, and she called back and said, just give her the money. So we presented it to the board. It was a very fierce debate. Finally, it was agreed that the project could proceed, but it was a bruising experience all round. The film was made, it was invited into competition in Cannes, and it was thrilling to see Julia and the producer Jessica Brentnall on the red carpet. It didn't win, it did polarise people, but it couldn't have been more successful in its own terms 
It was the right decision. And I thank Julia and Jane for allowing me to use their story in this talk. I keep asking myself why it's so hard for women's stories to find the support that they need. Another funding application helped shape my thinking. There was a proposal from a male filmmaking team to make a classic Shakespeare play into a film. It was a decision based on the number of points that could be awarded for the significant Australian content test. It was marginal. Board members looked really, really hard for a way to say yes. In the end, they decided that Shakespeare belonged to us all and could therefore be considered an Australian writer under the ingenious rubric, the Shakespeare exception. <laughs> all funding decisions are really high risk. All board and staff alike are very focused on risk mitigation in the decision making. And I think this leads to a mindset where decision makers have a tendency to look for ways to say yes to projects that tend to feel familiar. And these are much more likely to be male generated projects by definition, because there's more of them so they can feel familiar. And by contrast, they tend to look for ways to say no to the unfamiliar. And by definition, that's where females driven stories tend to sit. I'm particularly tickled, I must say, by the notion of the Shakespeare exception. After all, Captain Tony Abbott picked the Duke of Edinburgh to be a knight of the Australian realm, Sir Philip of Yarralumla. Why wouldn't Screen Australia dub Shakespeare the Bard of Olara? <laughs> However, embracing a New Zealand-born storyteller could be a bridge too far. Jane Campion's Top of the Lake requested a small tranche of closing finance. I thought it was a no-brainer. No was the right part. A concern was raised about Jane being a New Zealander and shooting the film in Queenstown. I was incredulous. Oscar winner, Palm Door winner, huge investment from the BBC, some 20 years a resident in Sydney. What? Fortunately, sense prevailed. The objection was quickly dispensed with. The series was a big success and the second series previewed in Cannes this year and happily shot in Sydney so the universe is evened up. Diversity requires us to engage with difference. It's uncomfortable and we shy away from discomfort. But our societies are increasingly diverse. Identity for so many is fractured. How can we talk to each other if we don't find ways to share each other's stories? My first CEO role was in a funding agency called New Zealand On Air. Its tasks included funding for New Zealand television programming to meet the needs of women, children, Māori and other cultures, and also persons with disabilities. The strategy at New Zealand On Air was to achieve dominant programming by virtue of, virtue of scheduling. So we couldn't have dominant programming by virtue of volume, but we could maybe have dominant programming by virtue of scheduling. So we let a tender and the result was a medical, we wanted a prime time soap. We let a tender, the result was a medical soap called Shortland Street. The contract stipulated that the program had to cater for the interest of all our target audiences. The resulting scripts, characters and storylines were full of Māori Pacifica and Asian characters, males and females and persons with disabilities. We believed that a long-running soap would engage New Zealanders with our own stories, our accents and issues, as well as developing writers, directors, actors and crew with whom we could build a resilient and creative television and film drama talent base. The board and I stood firm against vociferous opposition 
to our supporting a prime time series that could give a broadcaster a competitive advantage. Shortland Street exceeded beyond all of our expectations. It's still running 25 years later. This won't seem like a big deal in Australia where you have neighbours and home and away and other long running series and serials. But it was a game changer for New Zealand. I tolerated years of attacks and jibes, mostly from male journalists, about being PC, politically correct. I came to see that all it meant was inclusive, neither sexist nor racist. PC was a handy term of abuse to enable the old white boys club of journos to avoid confronting their own prejudices. I didn't care how much stick I got for that. But the fact that the criticism endured for so long is testament to the difficulty journos had in getting their heads around the idea that diversity on screen is okay, and it's okay to require that it be embraced. And this brings me to my third theme, which is the role of government in the screen industry. In the mid-1980s, most OECD countries were invaded, not by body snatchers, but by snatchers of community and cultural values. People were said to be motivated by economic self-interest that revealed their pre preferences through markets which competed to produce efficiency. The state was just another market, but one that was inefficient by definition and therefore less effective than other markets at delivering services or achieving outcomes. Citizens were turned into consumers. Society was turned into markets. Interaction between people were turned into transactions and creative expression was turned into products. Despite Blair and Clinton trying to come up with third-way politics, this invasion ramped up steadily for the last 30 years until we now see its ultimate expression in Donald Trump. He values the thinking of his super-wealthy cabinet over what he calls poor thinking, and that is thinking by non-super-rich people. It's no surprise that this rich thinking will require deregulation to ensure super profits in the financial and resource industries alongside tax cuts for the rich with commensurate reduction in social services, including cultural services. Goodbye, National Endowment for the Arts. Goodbye, National Endowment for the Humanities and other such cultural funding entities, not to mention health, environment and other public goods. Trump is an extreme manifestation of what has been happening in Australia, New Zealand and New Zealand. Communitarian values are subordinated to individualistic values. The role of the state is diminished, denigrated and debased. In my 30 years in the screen and wider cultural industries, I've only twice experienced a government that valued cultural expression for its intrinsic worth and put, put in place policy and funding initiatives to achieve cultural outcomes. When Helen Clark won the election in 1999, she took the role of Minister, for the Arts and Minister of Arts, Culture and Heritage. Her first act was to, fund a package of, was to find a package of funds for what she called the Arts Recovery Package. One of the elements of this was a film fund to enable larger scale films. We developed this proposal in response to filmmakers who aspired to make stories of scale as they had been able to in the days of the 1980s tax deals. Helen Clark was looking for just such a proposal. It provided a huge fillip to a sector that had been confined to low-budget films ever since the tax breaks of the 80s had been closed down. Helen was interested in the intrinsic value of arts and culture. Economic justifications were, in her view, a trap. The film fund was a huge success, 
It parlayed its original capital of some 20 million into over 30 million of investments and over 100 million in budgets by virtue of returns from successful films like Whale Rider and The World's Fastest Indian. Thank you, Helen Clark. However, once the film was totally expended, it was not renewed. A luminous moment for sure, but the light went out. New Zealand filmmakers are now, for the most part, confined back in the dark ages of low-budget filmmaking. It's no surprise that most of the films being made are documentary films, in part because they can be made for the tiny budgets that are available, and in part because they no longer have a place in New Zealand television schedules, so they look to the cinema to find a home. In Australia, I saw one shining light amongst a barrage of budget cuts. In 2009, the Rudd government approved a stage increase in funding for the ABC in response to a visionary proposal developed and advocated by Kim Dalton. By the third year of the triennium, funding totaled 67 million per annum, 40 million for drama programs, 27 million for the establishment of a children, uh, dedicated children's channel with a commitment to del delivering over 50% Australian programs. I was present at the launch of ABC3 I saw Kevin Rudd sing a little song. There's a bear in there, and a chair as well, and he sang the whole song. People scoffed, but I felt his genuine passion for the children's channel. Unlike in New Zealand, the funding increase was to be ongoing. It went into base funding and was subject to the ABC's annual indexation. The new funding represented an almost 30% increase to the ABC's TV budget. The impact was significant in terms of cultural and creative outcomes, industry activity and development, and the quality and quantity of Australian programs delivered to audiences. However, again, the light dimmed. The impact was ultimately transitory. The ABC shifted that money away from its intended landing places in drama, indigenous and children's stories to other ventures. But I have to say loud and clear that I was and I remain in awe of the ABC. In New Zealand, we are culturally impoverished with no national television broadcaster. It's a catastrophe for national storytelling and also for internationally ambitious local storytellers. The ABC is a national treasure, even if it doesn't always do what people like me think it should do. In New Zealand, we have Radio New Zealand. It's our life raft. And hooray for the current government that's given RNZ an increase for the first time in eight years. I hope it will grow into a public broadcaster in the digital world, whatever that means. I believe it can. But our screen production ecosystem in New Zealand is increasingly fragile. It cannot thrive without committed, long-term government funding. In the meantime, Australia has a seeming, seemingly robust regulatory environment for local content, in addition to the ABC, SBS, as well as direct and indirect government funding, all incentivises an ambitious independent production centre. It's an ecosystem that has served Australia very well for nearly 30 years. But now I want to turn to the significant challenges that I believe will threaten the integrity of this ecosystem in coming years. I see three headline challenges. First, whose identities and cultural landscapes are going to be promulgated and strengthened by cultural policy models in the future? Second, how will storytelling be funded? And third, what kind of political leadership do we require to engage with the first two questions? First challenge, whose identities? 
The University of Western Sydney released a study last month about arts, arts practice in Greater Western Sydney. Western Sydney comprises 10% of Australians and 47% of Greater Sydney residents, yet it attracts only 1% of Commonwealth Arts Programme funding and a woeful 5.5% of the state's cultural, arts, heritage and events funding. I see Western Sydney as a proxy for multiple geographic areas characterised by Indigenous populations, diverse ethnic groups and often low incomes, yet another rich-poor divide overlain with ethnic underprivilege. Their right to their own stories is the same right as that enjoyed by their fellow citizens on the North Shore or the Eastern Suburbs. Social cohesion depends on inclusion. The authors of the UWS study demonstrate that a new approach to cultural policy is essential. And you might say, so what? And I think the so what is, the dominant discourse will lose its legitimacy. New approaches to cultural policy will be developed. Second challenge, how will cultural content be paid for? Australia currently has a very effective, effective mixed model of funding for screen content. However, as we know, commercial television is desperately seeking not only the audience, but also a viable business model. Audiences, especially those under 35, have migrated to other platforms. Retail has gone online, and branding as we know it is dying. Digital-first companies will radically transform commerce over the next 50 years. Brands will increasingly be seen as a throwback to an age of mass industrialisation, mass distribution and mass media. In a digital world, there's no need for a modern manufacturer to create any brand or branding artifice that's a barrier to direct communication between a product and its audience and from one audience member to another. Without brand advertising, commercial television will not be able to continue to play its role in the funding landscape and a key pillar of this regime will likely falter. So what? So key funding sources will dry up, the existing funding model for screen content will not be sustainable. Third challenge, leadership. As markets converge and globalise and audiences fragment, the idea of purposeful and powerful interventions to deliver specific cultural outcomes is harder to fashion in equitable ways. Since the mid-80s, when economic rationalism became the dominant discourse, the cultural sector has been increasingly marginalised. It's partly because the changes were inimical to the nature and needs of artists and creators, and partly because the new discourse was focused on the individual, as opposed to cultural discourse that is essentially collective. So what? We in the cultural sector have lost our political voice and influence, as have other public goods sectors. A paradigm shift is required. To enable our society to express values that include and enable our fellow citizens requires a change in the value system that has invaded our body politic for the last 30 years. We need to reassess the role of government in respect of its unique ability to deliver public good for its citizens. We need to use our storytelling voices to reassert the values and that build a cohesive society. As a sector, we're capable of adapting to the digital challenges and opportunities and business models that are arising. Artists and the screen sector will continue to tell stories and find routes to the audience. Popular culture has steadily moved from the counterculture fringe to the very heart of national life. 
It's internationalist, open, permissive, implicitly anti-racist, and as evidenced by the modern festival crowd, as much communal as it is individualistic. Culture is intrinsic to each person's identity. It's multidimensional and essentially pluralist. It's essential to social cohesion and economic well-being, which are the core business of government. All of us have the opportunity and the responsibility to contribute to a new values base where social cohesion and economic well-being are acknowledged to be the warp and weft of our society. In conclusion, a colleague once asked me how I stayed motivated through the failures and disappointments. And I answered, there's always the next story. For Paul Callaghan, it was the luminous moments he experienced in the beauty and veracity of magnetic imaging. For me, it's always been about cultural imaging, the luminous beauty and veracity of extraordinary stories. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.